welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash valleyforthchurch. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. One of the most famous paintings in the world is uh, The Last Supper, painted by Leonardo da Vinci as a fresco for a church in Italy in 1497 or thereabouts. It took him a while. It is just a remarkable painting. Maybe you've seen it. I meditate on it quite a bit. It's just kind of been a a place where I've gone to in my thinking as I've gone through the Gospels in this teaching with you. And uh, there's that tableau and of, of the disciples, six on a side, and Jesus in the middle of the table. And we believe the moment that Leonardo was painting was the moment right after Jesus had said that one of them would betray him. It's a fascinating uh, work. It is done with such insight and artistic beauty in terms of the drawing out of each of the characters. So there are 13 figures, of course, Christ being the focal one, and each of them has a story that the more you, 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 you move into the painting, and well, well, first of all, you take it in for its entire portrait, of course, and this moment, and then I move in and out when I look at it at different faces. I begin with our Christ and and Da Vinci wanted to paint in that face both a mixture of sorrow at the betrayal, but also of confident knowledge of all that was to come because Jesus was going to introduce his new covenant with these men right after that sorrowful moment. And Da, da Vinci seems to mix both as Christ is about to introduce the bread and the cup. It's all right there in the imagery. So Christ in his sorrow and yet his confidence and To his right, of course, is John the Apostle, the beloved one, taking it all in with a heart that almost, as da Vinci painted him, seemed to know this was coming. And next to him is Peter, who is grabbing the the cloak of John and pulling him close, saying, ask him who it is and find out more. And Peter, in his determination to to rush in and solve the problem. Isn't that the man we came to know? And interestingly, Peter's hand is curled around a, a table knife. It's kind of a prophecy that Da Vinci wrote that later that night, Peter, in his impulsiveness, would take a sword and try to cut off somebody's head to defend Jesus. All of it is in these intimate little ways woven in. And then there is Judas, the third to the right of Christ, after this announcement that a betrayal was in the wind. Judas is painted in darker color, just a shade. He's recoiling, but the determination and the the stiffness in his face is there, the darkness in his eyes. He reaches for the morsel on the table that Jesus had said would be the sign, but also in the crook of his arm, I believe, there's the money bag that really had captured his heart. And so this portrait is remarkable, 13 figures, each with a story. And I meditate on it, and, and, and I, it, was, it was painted so that someone walking into that chapel would see the whole picture and stand back and get the moment, but then could walk up to each individual figure, and there would be a whole story painted in that face. And 
that person. You could step back and get the whole picture, or you could draw closer and learn about the individuals. And as I've been going through the Gospel of Luke, particularly his description of the hours of the cross, Luke has seemed to me to work in images like that. I've told you that he he tells this story through developing different characters like none of the other gospel writers really did. And it's as if he's painting us a picture in words. And you can step back in your reading and get the whole picture as you read the chapters as they flow, and then you can move closer. And Luke actually, I think, helps us do that. He he, he widens the wider picture, and he did that in the earlier parts that we studied over the last few weeks, where he showed us the crowd as a whole and, and their sin and their deception and the meanness of their hearts. And then he would tighten it again, and we would see the soldiers at the foot of the cross in their ignorance and their apathy, throwing dice for the clothes of Christ to fulfill prophecy. So the wider picture was there, showing us multiple lives, multiple people, people in the crowds, the soldiers themselves, the leaders at the edge of the circle. And then last time we were together, it seemed that he tightened the the focus a little bit, and we saw an encounter between Christ and the two thieves, one of whom rejected salvation and the other whom would soon enter into paradise. And so he, he drew us closer to the portrait and we looked a little more closely. And now I believe he draws us closer still. But the actual events on the cross become very intimate at this point. They involve the father and the son. So closer still we come now. And I, you see this also through three other elements that the actual events contained, and Luke was careful to remind us about. There are three things that draw our attention into quiet meditation upon what happens here. Time, darkness, and silence. Just as a way of introducing all of this before we get to the depths of the message today, notice that Luke talks about time. Now the other disciples, uh, pardon me, the other gospel writers mentioned this as well, He talks about in verse 44, it being about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. He's using the way the Jewish people uh, delineated time in in that period. They they rated it from the beginning of the day around 6 a.m. And so the third hour would have been 9 a.m. when the crucifixion started. But now it's at the height of that time. The sixth hour was noon in in the way they, they, they told their they, they figured their, their hours. And so it was about the sixth hour or the, the crest of noon. So the crucifixion had, had in its agony progressed for three hours. So all the verses that we've gone through from verse 26 all the way through verse 43 covered those first three hours on that Good Friday. Those hours crept by with mocking, with agonies, with the physical, physical agony of the crucifixion and with multiple encounters that Christ had with people and the crowds had with him. But now, at noon, things change. And in the three hours that that, that transpire between the sixth hour being noon and the ninth hour being three in the afternoon, the rest of the crucifixion experience unfolds and is completed. And Jesus gives up his spirit at three in the afternoon. 
So time is something that Luke calls us to look closely at. He concentrates us as he writes these words. Secondly, darkness. He makes sure we understand that something supernatural occurred in those hours to mark them off for us and for all time. He says, darkness was over the whole land. A deep darkness, a sudden darkness, a supernatural darkness, he says, because God himself, verse 44, caused the sun's light to fail. This was remarkable. People have tried to explain it away as an eclipse. That was impossible because this was at the time of Passover. Passover was at the time of a full moon. None of the celestial requirements for an eclipse were present Besides, it was not a gradual arrival of darkness. Eclipses come and they go rather rapidly. No, this was sudden darkness. The Greek word skatos, meaning deep darkness, meaning can't see the hand in front of your face darkness. This was supernatural. Matthew, I believe, tells us it was also accompanied by an earthquake toward the end of those three hours and other supernatural events. So darkness now comes. It's as though God the Father is bringing the house lights down on what many commentators over the centuries have called the the, the deepest moments in these hours of the divine drama of the cross. So Luke points out that the time was unique in human history. The darkness was unique. It was a supernatural darkening that brought many aspects to this event, the somberness of it, and many other things we'll see. And finally, the factor of silence. It's interesting, and many have noted, that in the early hours, the first three from 9 a.m. to noon, there was quite a bit of interaction going on. The crowds mocking Jesus the leaders sneering at Jesus, daring him to come down from the cross. So there was all of this verbiage thrown out in those hours. But Jesus also spoke three times and engaged in that way. First, he prayed, really, rather than spoke. And we know the Bible tells us in the Greek he did this repeatedly, pulling himself up on the cross and calling out to the Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So Christ speaking to the Father on behalf of every face in that crowd, every hand responsible for what was happening. Secondly, somewhere along that period of time, his mother Mary had been brought by John close enough to the foot of the cross for Jesus to see them and interact with them. And Jesus speaks a second time, and he tells John, the beloved apostle, behold your mother, and my mother, behold your son. He commits his earthly mother into the care of John for the rest of her days, being what the Bible always said he was, a perfect man, the perfect son, in perfect love, even in the midst of indescribable agony, he is majestic. And then finally, there is a third encounter we went over it last time, where he speaks to that thief hanging to his side, who calls him and asks him to remember him in his kingdom. And he says, today you will be with me in paradise. So three hours, three powerful statements. So there is a lot that happens in those three hours, but it's notable here that in these three hours, there is silence. It's as though the crowds fade away, their voices finally quit, but Jesus doesn't say anything 
in these three hours. The silence is striking. It's remarkable. So Luke reminding us of how God himself in these events draws us into hushed awareness of what occurred here. I believe that in these three hours, something changed. In the first three hours, Jesus was dealing with man. He was dealing with the forgiveness that he was going to engineer for those that were putting him into this terrible crucifixion. And he dealt with his mother, and he dealt with a seeking heart. But he has now finished dealing with man, and he enters into something only he could do, and that is for three hours in the darkness, he deals with God the Father over our sin. Commentators over the ages have seen the scene shift now to two characters over those three hours, the Father and the Son. And so, as I've titled this series, Tales from Calvary, we now go from human stories to the divine. There are two tales I'll tell you of today, the tale of the Father and the tale of the Son, and each of them shows us the depth of salvation. Let's go first to the tale of the Father, verses 44 and 45. He is the invisible architect of all that we see. The Father does two eternity-altering things in those three hours, the stage set by the darkness. Let's go over the details a bit, and, and then I'll show you what I have I've, how I've put into the words these two eternity-altering things. Notice it says it was about the sixth hour. I've identified that as high noon. That's in the Middle East, the most crystalline and, and brightest part of the day. And at that point, God in supernatural power brings a sudden darkness, skatos, not a momentary shadow, not a cloud across the face of the sun, but deep, sudden, groping darkness. Notice he brings it, it says, over the whole land. It's a mystery as to how far God allowed this darkness to go. The Greek word used there is the Greek word gay, which it, it relates to our word geography, I believe. It can be translated earth as it is 165 times in the New American Standard Bible. And, and so it could indicate the entire world. Was, or was it just Israel? We know that God did some work with the, the light of the sun, verse 45. And was it just Jerusalem? Was it Israel itself? Was it regional over that portion of the globe? Was it global? The scriptures do not really tell us. It's not possible for us to determine, but we know in that place and in that time, it was deep darkness. It's interesting that there are some historical sources, Origen in his historical work, and along with Eusebius, another second century, I believe, historian, they quoted, they quoted a, a Roman historian named Phlegon who wrote just some decades after the crucifixion of Jesus. And that Roman historian made mention of an extraordinary darkness that fell uh, upon the world and of an earthquake about the time of the crucifixion. You look at that and you say, wow, that's fascinating. Well, that's about all it can be. You know, it is fascinating, it's interesting, but as someone has written, this is, history is God's story, it's his story, and whether secular historians confirm this or not might be interesting, but the Bible here says it happened. 
And it was supernatural. Therefore, we don't need any explanation. God the Father brought this sudden darkness. It was at least over the region of Jerusalem. Maybe it was over that entire part of the world or farther. We don't know. But I'll tell you what, on the hill it was dark. And in Jerusalem it was dark. And on the hillside surrounding the city, it was groping darkness deep darkness, and it went solidly for three hours from the sixth hour, noon, when the sun was at its highest, to the ninth hour. Dr. A.T. Robertson, in his word pictures in the New Testament, says the crucifixion began at the third hour, according to Mark 15, 25, which was Jewish time for 9 a.m. The darkness suddenly began at noon, the sixth hour Jewish time, and it lasted until the ninth hour Jewish time, which was 3 o'clock p.m. And that 3 o'clock p.m. point of time is going to become important. And I want you to keep that in mind. So that's the setting. Imagine what it was to, must have been like. Sudden darkness falling. Terrifying it must have been. Silencing it must have been for those on the hillside who had mocked him. The soldiers who had driven the nails, the leaders who had driven the crowds. What well, must it have been like in Pilate's palace as sudden darkness enveloped the palace, and maybe Pilate's wife who'd warned him, oh, have nothing to do with this innocent man, looked at him in their throne room, and they both perhaps felt a shudder in their hearts. What must it have been like in the streets of Jerusalem and in the temple itself where the priests were preparing to sacrifice the Passover lambs by the hundreds into the thousands because it was Passover approaching Suddenly, everything was thrown into chaotic disarray. All of this happened in a moment, and it brooded for three hours. What could it have meant to them? I couldn't tell you, but the more important question to ask is, what did it mean to God? And as we look at this passage and as we study the theme of God bringing darkness, it is pretty clear, if you've read your Bible through a few times, that darkness and judgment accompany each other. When God comes in darkness, he comes in judgment. It is a symbol of his wrath coming or being poured out. And so it gives us a cue to the first thing that the father did. He poured his wrath out on his son in these three hours. From the sixth hour to the ninth hour, that darkness shrouded an outpouring of the wrath of God on the Lord Jesus. God fulfilled prophecy. Isaiah 53, which was read in our hearing this morning, 53 verse 4, in these three hours, God fulfilled what Isaiah promised. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken. Oh, stricken he was in those hours, smitten by God, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Oh, it came in those three hours in ways we can never imagine. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Oh, that's when it fully came. God poured out his wrath on his son. 
John MacArthur in his commentary in the Gospel of Luke gives us an excellent explanation of the darkness and what occurred in that scene. He writes, the Jewish people understood that supernatural darkness was associated with divine judgment. All the Old Testament prophets were familiar with it, particularly Joel and Amos and Zephaniah, he writes. And of course, we know that in the great tribulation, which is going to come in the times of the end, particularly the last half, the tribulation itself, and then the last three and a half years, oh, darkness will be a great factor demonstrating the judgment of God to chastise Israel and to judge the world. He continues, One could say that God brought the outer darkness of hell to Jerusalem that day and to Calvary itself. As he unleashed on Jesus Christ the full extent of his wrath against the sins of all who would ever be saved. The darkness was not caused by the absence of God. Some people believe that, no. The darkness was not caused by the absence of God, but rather by his presence in wrath, in full judgment, in vengeance, in fury, infinite wrath moved by infinite righteousness, released infinite punishment on the infinite Son. Think about that. You see, because Jesus is infinite God, in just three hours, he was able to absorb all the punishment of eternal hell for all who will ever believe, he writes. Jesus bore in his own body our sins, 1 Peter 2. As he who knew no sin was made sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5. He was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, Isaiah 53. And it was made a curse for us, Galatians 3. All of that compressed into three hours of human time, but an eternity of divine dealing happened. This was the cup that Jesus had pleaded with the Father in Gethsemane to remove if it were possible. The cup was drunk, was taken entirely in these hours. What did God the Father do? He poured his wrath out on his Son. For three eternal hours, while the sun's light failed, he did that to his son for us. Now, apparently, Jesus said nothing during the entire three hours of deep darkness. But at the end of the darkness, as the ninth hour approached, the darkness lifted. And Jesus did speak after that. And the Gospels record three sayings, some of them here some of them not. The first was about the ninth hour. This is in Mark. Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This again shows us that in the darkness there was a divine forsaking. Even as the darkness lifted at the very end, God the Father, in a sense, had to then turn his back on God the Son who had become sin for us. There is no way to fully put this into words that will make sense to us because we're not righteous enough to understand it. One commentator put it this way. The darkness has lifted, and in the mysterious workings known only to the Trinity, Jesus had, for the first time in eternity, been separated from his Father. And so he calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's notable that this is the only time in the Gospels that Jesus did not address God as Father. 
When Jesus took the sin of the world on himself, the Father turned away, an action that is incomprehensible to the human mind. And we may never be given insight into this moment in time, for as Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. We can but fall on our faces in wholehearted love and devotion to Jesus, who manifested matchless grace and infinite love to accomplish our eternal redemption. The Father turning from, from the Son reminds us of the prophet Habakkuk's declaration when he spoke of God, your eyes are too pure to approve evil and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Jesus said, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Greek verb for forsaken meant literally to leave someone down in a pit and conveys the sense of the father abandoning the son. End of quote. How do we describe that? The father forsook the son because the son took upon himself our transgressions, according to Isaiah. He was delivered up because of our transgressions. Romans 4.25 echoes Isaiah in the New Testament. He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.21. All of that biblical reality was rotating upon Jesus in those hours. He became a curse for us in the eyes of the Father in terms of Galatians 3.13. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. 1 Peter 2.24. He died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. 1 Peter 3.18. And became the propitiation, the satisfaction faction of a holy God for our sins. First John 4.10. The Bible tells the story. I cannot understand it. I simply marvel at it. Another commentator put it this way. Christ not only bore man's sin, but actually became sin on man's behalf in order that those who believe in him might be saved from the penalty of their sin. He gave his life a ransom for many. Matthew 20, 28. When Christ was forsaken by the Father, their separation was not one of nature or essence or substance. Listen, Christ did not in any sense or degree cease to exist as God or as a member of the Trinity. He did not cease to be the Son any more than a child who sins severely against his human father ceases to be his child. But Jesus did for a while cease to know the intimacy of fellowship with his heavenly Father, just as a disobedient child ceases for a while to have intimate, normal, loving fellowship with his human Father. As already mentioned, the mystery of that separation is far too deep even for the most mature believer to fathom, but God has revealed this deep truth for us to accept and to understand to the limit of our ability under the illumination of the Spirit, end of quote. You live in the mystery, and today if you know Jesus Christ, just like Lee Tapman did, and you step into death, you will step into the greatness of all that Jesus achieved. I do not understand it all, but oh, I've trusted it all. Have you? So as the darkness lifted, Jesus tastes that separation and calls out and fulfills prophecy as well. And, but there are two other sayings. The second thing is that after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, what a marvelous statement, 
to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. Again, to fulfill prophecy, he asked for finally something to be brought to his lips. And in my opinion, that was partially so that his throat could be, be cleared for the next statement, which was after he received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he said it with a full voice, the Greek says. He raised himself up on that cross and with a loud voice said, it is finished. Because he was in control of every moment of this entire experience. And he drew himself up in mighty power. Called out for the world and the underworld to hear. It is finished and it was. Bless his name. And so you see in those three hours... God poured his wrath out on his son. And then it was finished. So that is the depth of a darkness we will never understand. Perhaps we'll spend all of eternity adoring him for. But as you go back to our passage, you see that the darkness lifts and something else remarkable happens in verse 45. Go back to the text. The darkness had lifted at this point, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. What is this about? And why is it included in the other gospel writers as well? It's because it shows us the second thing that, that God the Father did on, on that hill. Number one, he poured his wrath out on his son, but the second thing he did was he opened the way to heaven for us. He opened the way to heaven for us. The darkness is gone. The price is paid. The hell is tasted. The payment is made. The wrath is satisfied. And at that great moment when Jesus cries out, it is finished. God himself tears the curtain in the temple in Jerusalem from the top to the bottom completely in two. Let's look at this. The temple had 13 curtains, all designed to drive home the fact that God was perfect in holiness and man is sinful and man cannot have un unhindered access to God because of his sin. But the thickest and the greatest veil hung between the holy place in the, the, the midroom of the temple and the holy of holies, which was where the Ark of the Covenant was and where God's presence would come. The holiest place. It was a place that only the high priest could come into only one time a year on the Day of Atonement when he would quickly dash the blood drops of a sacrificed lamb on the, the mercy seat. He would come in quickly, dash the blood to cover his sins and the sins of the people for a year, and then he would make his way out. It was a massive curtain. Josephus tells us that it was somewhere near 60 feet high. An early Jewish tradition says that it was woven solid and it was woven about four inches thick. They said about the width of a man's hand. It weighed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pound, pounds because it was woven solid. I, I, I believe that it didn't have a parting place in the middle it, it was woven solid from side to side, 60 feet high, perhaps as many feet wide. I, I don't have that figure. But the priest could not make his way through it. He had to walk around it. It was solid. 
Exodus teaches us that this thick veil was fashioned from blue and purple and scarlet material. I've always in my mind wondered if that didn't demonstrate the bruised future body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just me thinking. Leon Morris, the Bible commentator, says this veil symbolized the separateness, the remoteness of a holy God from sinful people. When it was torn, it gave expression to the truth that the death of Jesus made the way open into the very presence of God for you and for me and for you and for everyone who is facing their sin and needs to come into the presence of a holy God. All of it was demonstrated when the curtain was torn. Now, the book of Hebrews tells us what happened supernaturally when that happened. Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 22. It tells us that when Jesus died and the veil of the temple tore, when his flesh was torn and his offering was finished as he breathed his last, the way into the presence of God was open forever. It says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water because the temple was torn and Jesus sacrificed his life. You now have a high priest who is in the very presence of God pleading his blood for you. And you now have full entrance into the presence of a holy God. No more separation. Hebrews 4.16 says, Therefore let us draw near with confidence, with boldness to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That changes your everyday walk with God. Not only in salvation were you able to be brought right into the presence of God because of the sacrifice of Jesus. No separation between His holiness and your presence because of who you are in Christ. Not only at death will you step from this sinful, broken world, a sinful person like you are, into the perfect presence of God and the throne room of God. At death, even in life, as you come in prayer, you can draw near with confidence to that throne of grace and not find condemnation, but mercy and grace. Paul summed it up in Romans 5. He said, your whole standing is changed. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which you stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. What's your relationship to God, believer, today? Even if there are problems in your life, even even if you're stumbling in your life, even if today you're backslidden in your life, oh, the grace of God and the blood of Christ and the suffering of those three hours says you still have a standing in God's grace. You stand in it. And if you step into glory, you have the absolute hope that you will go from this place, from the grave to glory, because of what Jesus did. I mean, when Jesus died on the cross, he opened the way to the Father. And isn't that interesting? Didn't Jesus look at his disciples the night before and say, I am the way and the truth and the life. Oh, he's the way and more ways than you can imagine. He's not just the way according to the truth. He made the way 
in those hours. So the Father opened the way for us to go to heaven. Two eternity-altering acts by the Father. And it was all done in the darkness until it was finished. And then the darkness lifted, and in a sense, a new day came. Now we go, as we bring this to a focus and a close, to the tale of God the Son. Go back to the passage, verse 46. You have the last statement of the seven statements on the cross by Jesus. Then... The curtain having been torn, the darkness having been taken away, the declaration by his own lips that it is finished. Jesus, calling out with a loud voice again, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Let me just take away any kind of movie maker's idea that you may have seen over your lifetime of a physically defeated and depleted Jesus slumping on a cross and letting his head drop, his chin drop to his chest and barely uttering the words, Father, into thy hand I commit my spirit. The Bible says he did it in a powerful way. What did he do? He did two things. First of all, he entered back into fellowship with his father. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Now, it's interesting. When he uttered this, he was using the words of maybe, and many authors have pointed this out, of maybe the most familiar prayer in the Hebrew culture. He was quoting Psalm 31.5. This was the prayer that, that Jewish people prayed as they closed their eyes at night in bed. It was a prayer that was taught them from their very earliest moments of life. It was their version of, Now I lay me down to sleep, and I pray the Lord my soul. Some of you. Yeah. But theirs was out of Scripture. Psalm 31 Verse 5, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. It was a familiar prayer. I mean, if you think about it with a bit of imagination, Christ may have learned this as a growing toddler from his mother Mary, standing some yards from the cross, even though Jesus, as eternal God, inspired and inscripturated the prayer himself centuries before. God the Son, Son of God, all the same. But as the divine author, he had the license to make two changes to this prayer. First of all, he added Father to it. Psalm 31.5 does not have this. It, it speaks to him as, O Lord, I believe, Yahweh, the highest word of reverence for God. But Jesus changes it, and he proceeds it, and he says, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. And that was something that no one had ever done. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on this, puts it so beautifully. I want to read you his words. It is a matter of biblical and scholarly record that no one prayed this way until Jesus did. No Jew 
came into the presence of God and intimately called him Ava, Father. It's a matter of biblical and scholarly record that no one prayed this way until Jesus did so. The description of Father, or the adding of Father, was revolutionary. Father framed Jesus' public ministry. It was the signature of his soul from first to last. In other words, it was the signature of his prayer life with the Father. That was revolutionary. Father framed Jesus' public ministry, he writes. It was the signature of his soul from first to last. It is the one recorded word from his youth. This is interesting. Luke, Luke 2.49, when he, when he was 12 years old in the temple and his family couldn't find him, when they finally found him, he said, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business in my father's house? It was the implicit title of the one who called to him from heaven at his baptism. The father basically indicated when, when Jesus rose out of the water, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, whom I love. Father was the opening word of the prayer he taught his followers to pray. Our Father, Lord, he was, he was projecting into what he was going to achieve for them on the cross itself to where their relationship would become so intimate. They'd be so full of the acceptance of God's grace, by God's grace, that they would have an intimate relationship with God as Father that they had never imagined. All because of the three hours. It was the word he used to accept the cross. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. It was the first word spoken from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And now having tasted the judgment, it was part of the last statement before his death. Father was the sustaining lyric of Christ's life. And here at, at death, it expressed his ineffable trust and peace at death. In other words, Jesus knew exactly who he was committing himself to. It was a way in which he was saying, Father, I'm coming back. According to our eternal plan, our forever story about saving people, I left heaven I engineered my own incarnation and I came to a sin-soaked planet and I've let them do this to me. But now that I've bought my lambs, I'm coming back. In a few moments, I'll let go of this body by my own decision. I'm coming back. Welcome me, Father. So he added that, but there's something else that he removed because Psalm 31, 5 in its original, when they prayed it, every Jew prayed it, he prayed, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord. Jesus didn't add that. He didn't pray that. Why? Because Jesus didn't need redeeming. He is the Redeemer. Flawless Son of God, perfect man. He didn't need to die for his own sin. He was there entirely for yours and mine. There's, there's greatness in the details, isn't there? The tale of God the Son 
He entered back into fellowship with his father when it was all finished. And then lastly, he left this mortal life behind. Go back to our passage. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice. Now this is interesting because that's not how people on crosses died. Crucifixion usually took a day or two or three, and it was designed to slowly suffocate you. And when people finally died, they died because their lungs filled up and, 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 and they were not able to, to pull themselves up for a breath. And so they died wordlessly. They died in a whimper. They died through suffocation. Jesus Christ, the master of the hour, cried out with a loud voice. I don't know what to make of that except that he died his way. Then it says he breathed his last. Interesting. Jesus controlled his death, folks. He breathed his last here not because he had to. And we know that Human beings have no control over that final breath. I've been in too many of those situations not to know that. But here, he breathed his last, not because he had to, but because he decided to. Elsewhere, Jesus in Mark 15 also, the scripture says he yielded up his spirit in Mark, and the verb yielded there is, a, is, is the Greek word iphiemi, which means to set away, which means that Jesus literally sent away his spirit in the presence of the Father like a king. He dismissed his spirit. It's in the active voice in the Greek, which means it was his choice. It didn't happen to him. He completed his life. In other words, Jesus actively, by a conscious act of his own sovereign will, surrendered his spirit. The point is that Jesus' life was not taken from him by the people surrounding the cross that day. He did exactly what he predicted he would do in John 10, 17, saying, I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. You're seeing that here. He's almighty God. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. He was in full control even to his very last breath. When I began to study this passage earlier this week, I began with my own observations, and here's what I wrote in my notes when I came to that moment. Yeshua, God, in this moment, Yeshua, the engineer of his own incarnation, here the Creator ceased to inhabit the created. What mighty majesty. And so the curtain comes down and then is torn in two. But for our purposes, Luke's description comes to a close here in verse 46 on what has been called by many the divine drama. But isn't it fascinating that the time is made much of here. The time that God chose to end all this. When did Jesus commit his spirit and breathe his last? Well, verse 44, the ninth hour. What was significant about the ninth hour? I mean, six hours had transpired in which there was a physical sacrifice where the wrath of God in the darkened time poured out on Christ, where the very height of it, not only the wrath was tasted, but separation was experienced, and Christ cries out at the, at the apex of it. 
But then the restoration. And then the tearing of the curtain. It all climaxed at the ninth hour. Now what was the ninth hour? It was 3 p.m. And Bible scholars for centuries have shown us that at 3 p.m. that was normally the time on Passover day in which this all occurred when the priests in the temple were beginning to sacrifice to cut the throats and to, to shed the blood of the Passover lambs. By the thousands. You can't miss the irony that the religious Jews who had rejected Jesus were preparing to sacrifice their Passover lambs while being spiritually blinded to the fact that on that hill outside Jerusalem, God the Father had just sacrificed His own lamb. The Lamb of God. You see, all those sacrifices that the Jewish people had made for thousands of years were like flashing neon lights pointing ahead to this day and those hours and this lamb. Scripture says they were shadows of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now we know that some saw him and knew him. Many others would be struck with repentance in the time to come. But Jesus inaugurated a new covenant through his death, paid for in blood, and that's just like he said he would do if you go back just one chapter to Luke 22, the night before, when Jesus inaugurated what we know to be communion. He said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It all came to pass. Don't miss the great act of Jesus for you. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, you can bow your head in a moment as I close in prayer and our worship team prepares to come and we receive communion together. And you in this hour can see your sins and seek your Savior and know Him. If you're a believer, Exalt in the grace in which you stand. Oh, in meditative prayer, bring your struggles with sin to Him. But know that the payment was made and the darkness was tasted, and you never will taste it. Communion is a reminder that a new covenant was made with the Father to accept you based on the deeds of the Son.